Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Aaron. And third-year psychiatry resident Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hello, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, on this episode, we're going to focus on child psychiatry in Ukraine. This is the second of two episodes, and we have with us again joining us Dr. Linda Schmidt. She is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and assistant professor at OHSU School of Medicine. She completed her residency at Harvard's Longwood program and her fellowship at OHSU. Since 2016, Dr. Schmidt has led teams of mental health professionals to Ukraine to conduct training seminars for health professionals across the country. In her spare time, she enjoys running, gardening. Dr. Schmidt, thank you for joining us again on Let's Get Psyched. Thank you for having me. Nice to be back. Uh, Alan, I'm, I want to just throw it to you for a, f- a first question. I know that you want to you want to start us off. Thanks, Darren. So, um, there is a horrifying war going on that Russia has inflicted on Ukraine. Um, in order to kind of speak to what we know about, we aren't going into all of the details regarding the war. Although I think it's highly encouraged that everyone inform themselves. Um, But we'd like to talk about them as they relate to the patients that you have helped Ukraine treat and the services provided that you were familiar with before the war, how those have changed, how whether those will continue to be available. Um, So That having been said, what were things like for a trauma patient and for your patient population, developmentally disabled patients before the war? Where were we starting from? Okay. Um, Much of the work that I do at OHSU is focused on on youth with developmental disabilities and mental health. So that is an area of focus of mine. And in the work I did in Ukraine with my colleagues, uh, some of it, and at times much of it, was focused on um, helping professionals and parents best support their child who has autism or some other developmental disability. Uh, Services uh, were certainly lacking. Uh, Services as compared to the U.S. and, uh, and other countries definitely lacking in Ukraine. And And the reason that we were focused on autism uh, is that that was a request made of of professionals and parents. Um, We want to learn how to treat youth, how to support youth. So, um, you know, support services are pretty rudimentary, um, if available at all. Uh, Much of uh, a big push in Ukraine in recent years has been inclusive education and deinstitutionalization of these children. Um, So for for much of of, uh, the many of the past years, these kids were in institutions, they were in separate schools, or they weren't going to school. And so there's been a real push in, in the last several years to include these kids and have them living at home and get support services. So, so I can't help but 
uh, make comparisons when I hear the word deinstitutionalization, right? Deinstitutionalization in our country was a disastrous promise that never materialized because of lack of funding and political agendas. Um, and on the other hand, I hear you talking about folks being deinstitutionalized into something that sounds maybe like wraparound services, which could be wonderful as opposed to the US where people were kind of deinstitutionalized into a vacuum. What are your thoughts on that comparison and, and how does it look there? I think wraparound is a stretch. Uh, I, I think the, the biggest change that has occurred from my perspective is when I see these kids were institutionalized, so there was a lot of stigma associated with having a child with autism or any sort of developmental disability. So families, you know, the, the only support or the only treatment that they were given or recommendations is to have them go to an institution and live there versus now there's much less stigma associated with having a child with autism or some other DD. Um, Wraparound is definitely a stretch. There's not quite that level of support. I wish there were. Uh, the care is largely delivered by parents and extended family members, although um, speech therapy is available. Occupational therapy until a couple of years ago was not available in, in Ukraine. There weren't any occupational therapists, um, and that number is increasing, and their ability to serve these youth has also increased and improved over the years. What kind of occupational therapy roles um, are kind of coming to fruition there? So OTs there, there, there are more OTs being trained. I think they now have a professional occupational therapy organization, um, and they're becoming more familiar with uh, Western uh, methods of working with youth with autism, um, whether that's sensory modalities, um, you know, things along those lines, things that our OT providers here in the U.S., we frequently refer kids with autism or sensory issues to, those are now much more, um, I, I wouldn't say they're readily available, but they're more available than they used to be just a few short years ago. So in addition to weighted blankets and, and sensory integration efforts, you had mentioned some uh, approaches that maybe to us would seem a little bit less typical. You had mentioned dolphin therapy. I, yeah. I don't know if that was, was that part of the OT? Um, no, no. And, and interestingly, uh, it's, we were asked about dolphin therapy at multiple sites when, again, we were in three different cities presenting and at each city, uh, there would inevitably be one or two questions about what our thoughts were about dolphin therapy. And I had never heard of such Yeah, I've a never thing. heard of that. Yeah, exactly. And I'm thinking dolphins in Ukraine. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and I would be told, oh yeah, there are these centers and th there are, they're all over the country. Wow. Um, and, and, and basically, you know, families pay out of pocket for this unproven um, therapy. And basically wow. it involves, again, from what I've been told, you take the kid and you throw him in the pool with a dolphin. And somehow that's supposed to help them um, uh, with their autistic symptoms. Um, <laughs> I think it would be quite frightening on multiple levels. Yeah. So, uh, but what I think what was really sad is that these parents are so desperate that they will spend 
their hard-earned money on on um, an intervention that has absolutely no data. And in that sense, they're no different than our country, right? Where there's yeah, all kinds yeah. of people preying on desperate parents. Yeah. What, what yeah. else do you know about the dolphin therapy? What is the theory behind it? And and uh, are there people actually studying it? You know, Alan, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I don't. Um, and, Again, it, it was something we briefly talked about, but did I do any research into it? No. Um, but but from, from the research that I've done, there's absolutely no evidence-based. In, that's not evidence-based. Um, okay. And, it's not and maybe entirely doing, surprising. Maybe they're, maybe they're doing research on it, but but I don't know. Uh, I suspect that there's a lot of uh, bias in those in that research because it's probably being conducted by you know the owners of the dolphin therapy centers. Yeah. To what extent was there um, family support uh, and, and, and maybe even volunteers? Not a lot of family support. So um, as I mentioned to you, um, I guess off podcast, one of, um, through this process, I met uh, a Ukrainian mother who lives in the U.S., has lived in the U.S. for many years. She has two boys with autism, and she came on several of the trips with us. And so she would lead these seminars for parents. And what she really focused on is parental advocacy and, you know, parents supporting one another and parents um, advocating to the government and to schools that, you know, this is our children, we need more support, we need additional services, teaching them how to set up Facebook support groups for one another, teaching them how to share information with one another. Um, And so I think that was a big change from year to year to see these programs start, this, these parent driven support networks starting to, to take root and flourish. I really feel that parent support is makes such a big difference in my patients' families' lives. I that's incredible. That's so great. It's huge. It's huge. Um, I remember speaking at uh, so one of the talks that I was asked to do, and this was to a group of parents. There were also professionals who could attend, but it was largely parents. And I was asked to talk about puberty and sexuality in um, in autism and developmental disability. And uh, Vanderbilt University has a fantastic guide, Healthy Bodies, I'll just put a plug in for them. Um, But it's a really great guide for parents and professionals about how to start having these conversations with our kids with autism. And that you need to start early, you shouldn't wait until they've hit puberty and hormones are raging. But I'll never forget, um, so one of the questions that came up was, you know, what do we do with our son or sons who are exhibiting what they would refer to as hypersexual behavior? Well, it really wasn't hypersexual. These kids had just never been taught, you know, this is this is private, this is public behavior, you know, public versus private behavior, safe touch versus unsafe touch, inappropriate touch versus appropriate touch. And, and one of the questions that was raised by a mother Uh, She shared with me that she had a nine-year-old son, severe autism, who had crawled into bed with grandmother. And what I gathered from her story was that the son was masturbating with grandmother there. And her question was whether the United States um, would, you know, use castration. Was that that an intervention that we use for these kids? Uh, Chemical castration, right, we're talking about. No, we're talking, we're talking medical castration. 
Surgical castration. Surgical castration. Oh. Thank you. Yes, we're talking surgical castration. Oh, wow. And I said, no, that's, I, I, well, first of all, I made sure that I understood the question correctly from my translator. And she said, yes, this is, you know, this is how people think. Um, and I said, no. And I, I said, when, when I've been presented with that, when, when, a, when a youth is, is um, exhibiting inappropriate, be, you know, sexualized behaviors, and they, you know, I, first of all, is education and repetitive education. You have to repeat. And, and um, but then I might use an SSRI. Um, so it was, it, but then what was interesting is the conversation that took place between parents. Uh, you know, basically, I didn't talk for another five to 10 minutes because the mothers there were talking amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I think what it's, what became evident is that there's such a lack of education, lack of resources and lack of support. Um, You know, these parents didn't know who to turn to and the professionals also really didn't have um, the knowledge um, or or the guidance to give them. Um, So So the the castration effort was a, a widespread practice in order to reel in kind of behaviors that might be disturbing to families or or unacceptable in society by folks on the spectrum? I don't know that it's widespread. I, I don't want to go so far as to say that it's widespread. I don't know that it's done. There, there was discussion about the use of bromide during World War II and reducing sex drives, and that sparked a whole other conversation. But I, I can't say that it's widespread, maybe during the Soviet era, but certainly not that I'm aware of um, in Ukraine at this time. Okay. So the and, bromide is not currently being used? No, no. Okay. Okay. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about child psychiatry in Ukraine with Dr. Linda Schmidt, child and adolescent psychiatrist and assistant professor at OHSU. Um, Dr. Schmidt, I I, I want to kind of uh, talk, uh, pick up on something you mentioned before, where um, uh, folks were uh, parents were taught to kind of set up Facebook support because this is kind of a burgeoning kind of thing that they really need to get to get going with to, to help families with uh, children with autism. Uh, is, is, do you have any sense of, is social media currently a, 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 a stepped up effort now uh, given the dangerous situation in the war? Is it, is it part of an educational thing, a connection? Uh, from, from what I see, um, my Ukrainian friends and colleagues are all over Facebook, posting about the war, posting about efforts, um, posting support, um, even posting, uh, you know, Ukrainians in Poland for refugees coming there. Hey, we've got a place for you to stay or call me if you need some assistance finding uh, housing. So I, I think it's definitely widely used as it is here in the U.S., I wanted to pivot now and talk about what's going on with these patients during the war. What are we expecting after this uh, this conflict is over for them? Well, I think obviously we're expecting a, a lot of mental health, an increase in mental health problems. You know, what we're seeing now. So uh, when I've met with my colleagues as recently as last week, uh, you know, part of the conversation was around 
so families are having to leave everything and flee and drive 10 hours to the Polish border or drive however many hours. And these are families with youth with autism or developmental disability. What can, how can we help support these families? How, what can they do? You know, imagine, you know, autistic kids thrive on routine and structure and sameness. Mm -hmm. And now we're pulling them out of that structure and routine and sameness and their world is completely disrupted. How can we support them? Uh, and, and I think that that's, that is true for, for all children, um, yeah. whether they have a developmental disability or not, their, their routine, their structure, um, their way of life has been completely disrupted. I wonder if you could say a little bit about, because you have training in trauma-informed care, what can you say to just, just parents out there who have children and they're watching the war? And there's, I know that they say there's going to be disturbing imagery, but a lot of times that television is left on and kids see these images. So what, what is your advice to parents about how to talk to their kids about what's That's going a good on? Question. Yeah. So, um, so this is U.S. parents or Ukrainian parents or both? Let's say both. Oh, that's a good, yeah, good distinction. Well, well yeah. and people all over the world who could be threatened. And I mean, there's so many regions that are, you know, by proxy, uh, you know, Putin just threatened um, the two countries that are thinking about joining NATO with kind of repositioning nuclear, nuclear weapons. And yeah, yeah there's a lot. Uh, so... The evidence shows that repeated exposure to distressing images on television can impact, it does impact um, development of PTSD. So if you've got a young child or younger children, I think you should limit their exposure to distressing images. I mean, it's distressing to us as adults. Imagine a developing child's brain. Um, I think if, if you know, depending on the age of the child, um, answering their questions uh, that, that, that come up, providing reassurance, appropriate reassurance, but also limiting the amount of visual images that they're exposed to. Um, and then I also think, you know, our, our advice to Ukrainian parents is, yes, we understand that you're anxious. Yes, we understand that you're distressed. Um, but to the degree that you can manage, you know, take steps to manage your own distress, and your own anxiety that will help your child because we know that children um, feed off of the anxiety and distress of their parents to the degree that they can keep some level of stability and structure. So, you know, same routine, uh, same bedtime, you know, same again, daily routine to the, to the degree that they can keep those routines in place, the better it is for all of us, for, for children and adults. I was just going to say, I think that's really good advice for adults as well. Um, I'm working on this myself, but I think we could generalize this, that during this scary time, during this um, kind of time with some new existential threat, um, focusing on minimizing sensation seeking for sensation seeking's sake and finding ways that one can actually be helpful. And, you know, if we're going to relate to this issue, relating with less kind of obsessive news consumption and more meaningful activity, whether that's reaching out to someone, 
that you know or finding an organization that, I mean, with globalization, there are many meaningful ways to contribute and um, Linda's going to share one of them with us. So one of the psychiatrists that I work with uh, in Lviv, Dr. Oleg Romanchuk, uh, in, has a, an outpatient practice called Circle of Family. And he has established a charitable foundation um, in conjunction with the Ukrainian Catholic University and uh, the Institute of Mental Health of the Ukrainian Catholic University. I will provide the website that you can donate. Proceeds go to support the work that they're doing um, with refugees and with providing trainings to professionals on psychological first aid type interventions and, and uh, again, interventions for children uh, that are affected by the war. Dr. Schmidt, what um, did you receive? I'm just kind of curious because, um, you know, I feel like a lot of folks out there want to help. I, I you know, I, I, if I had the opportunity, I would like to help. But what kind of special training did you should people receive like there's many practitioners, psychologists, psychiatrists out there? Is there a way to to get training and and become more involved and um, perhaps ha- help uh, people in other countries where they're yeah? You know, I had absolutely no training, and when I was first approached, I, I thought I don't know that I have anything to offer. I mean, I, I and I still sort of feel that way. But, but what I realized is that the training, the, the, the psychiatry training that we received, that I've received in the U.S. is incredible. And that our knowledge base is, is so wonderful that, yes, we all have things to offer. And, and so I, you know, I just said yes. And so I, I think if the opportunity arises, you know, say yes, and you sort of learn as you go and express curiosity. I mean, I think we were really... Um, proactive in, in, in talking with our hosts about, you know, here's what we want to talk about. Is this appropriate? Um, do you, you know, what's, we, we try to get as much background information on their knowledge base and what the, sort of what the lay of the land is and was in child psychiatry and child mental health, tried to find out as much about Ukrainian culture as we can or could before we went. Um, and then we sort of learned on the way. I like that. I think uh, to that point, you know, there was this effort that came out when after that large explosion in Beirut that was called Heal Beirut that was basically trying to get different health providers to sign up to do virtual um, care with folks in Beirut. And and I think overwhelmingly the training that psychologists and psychiatrists have is we take it for granted because it's just called I'm a psychologist or I'm a psychiatrist, right. but it is right. It is robust and it is trauma informed. It is. And um, yeah. So if I can so, just speak to that for one second. So by way of example, psychiatrists in Ukraine receive 1.5, one and a half years of postgraduate training to become a child psychiatrist. You add on another six months. So that's two years to become a child psychiatrist as compared to five years. That's one and a half years as compared to four years for adult or general psychiatry. So there's a real difference in training. Um, right. so, Not yeah. to mention to even get to a psychiatry residency in the U.S., you're right. eight years out of undergraduate and you right. have demonstrated a, a, a non-symbolic, a real substantial demonstrated interest in mental health. 
Uh, I'm going to ask a kind of uh, maybe a little bit of wonky question uh, with as far as you said that psychosocial interventions were maybe underutilized. Are, are you aware of any uh, psychosocial interventions that were had better translation and ones that were challenging and it had because because different cultures and, and, and different environments? Can you say a little bit about that? So ones that we had more difficulty translating. Um... I'm trying to think of any specific examples. Um, you know, I, I think the the I, I think I don't know this that this will answer your question, Aaron. But uh, when we would talk about ABA or applied behavior analysis as an evidence based intervention for autism, there was real resistance to that because the Soviet model or the early Ukrainian model of ABA was very punitive, very pejorative, not oh, at all what it was really meant to be. And so there was a lot of resistance um, and, and a lot of pushback. Um, and so I think it's still in a process of, 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 you know, educating folks that no, this is really not ABA that's true to the model. Um, you know, the, uh, at times we'd come across, you know, difficulties in translating, but again, we had really great translators. So we, we usually figured out a way to communicate um, whatever point or whatever um, bit of information we were trying to communicate. We've talked about different ways that you were able to uh, teach new practices to folks in Ukraine. What have you learned from Ukraine and what can we learn from Ukraine that might be novel to us? I think one of the things I've learned is that we're all the same. Um, you know, we're all the same. We have all this very similar struggles and, you know, parents love their children over there just as much as American parents love their children. Uh, I, I think, you know, family is definitely central to life there and ex particularly extended family. Um, I think I've also, you know, I think every time I go to Ukraine, I always come back with a renewed appreciation, um, not only for the experience there, but a renewed appreciation for my life in the U.S. and you know, what the U.S. has afforded me in terms of education and opportunities. Um, and yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's other things that I've learned that are just not coming to mind that I'll think of as soon as this podcast is over. Sure. And, and, and are, are there any mental health practices there that were novel that you thought were excellent or that or things that we do, but that they do particularly well or do better? Not that I came across. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Not that I came across. Again, I, um, historically, it's largely been biologically focused. Yeah. It's hard. I think, you know, um, when you it goes back to in the last episode, you mentioned that 2.5% without, I mean, without mental health parity and without money globally, it's very hard to have excellence in care. Right, right. Now, because of the importance of the family and the extended family, do you think uh, family therapy would translate well? Or do you feel like it would be, again, it'd be a challenge because there could be folks that have different mindsets? And yeah, you know, so so we de well, I've definitely done some, some presentations or, or seminars on family therapy, in particular, uh, 
parent management training or parent training for behavior management of children. Um, and that is definitely something that is utilized. I think it's a little more challenging there, again, because, um, you know, therapy is sort of a new idea. It's a new, relatively new concept and mental illness still has stigma. And so, it, you know, it's one thing to get mom into family therapy. It's a whole other thing to get dad coming to family therapy as well. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of resistance in particular among um, Ukrainian men. Uh, again, you know, the, it goes back to stigma. Um, and, and I think that's changing. Um, I know Ukrainians are doing a lot of work, Ukrainian, the health system and Ukrainian professionals are doing a lot of work to change that and to increase public awareness um, and to normalize it. Uh, but yeah, they've got a little bit ways to go. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about child psychiatry in Ukraine with Dr. Linda Schmidt, child and adolescent psychiatrist and assistant professor at OHSU. Linda, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsyched on KUCR gmail.com. You can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Benjamin Metrican. I've been your host psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Any last thoughts, Linda? Uh, let me see. Oh, you know, here's an interesting thing that I think okay. is worth knowing. Um, again, I was thinking about little interesting Ukrainian vignettes or um, anecdotes. Um, so Ukrainian doctors are really poorly paid, like very poorly paid. And um, it is expected to tip your doctor. So they call oh. it, they call it, in, they call it informal payments. Um, so for example, the last time I was there in 2019, my child psychiatry colleague in Lviv, his mother had just gone in for surgery. And, and yes, there, there is universal health care in Ukraine, but he had to pay a one month salary as a tip to the surgeon. Oh and, and you oh, have to basically do it in advance. Um, otherwise you're not gonna get your surgery. So it's, um, so, so there's quite a bit of out-of-pocket expense uh, for, for um, Ukrainian citizens. The other thing that uh, universal healthcare there doesn't really pay for, doesn't cover is medication. So a lot of times folks are paying out-of-pocket for medication. Um, even if you're in the hospital, your family takes the prescription, goes to the pharmacy, buys the medication and brings it back to you in the hospital. Is that particularly psychiatric meds or just meds in no, general? No, I think it in general, in general. Yeah. How, how does the payment work? How does the tipping work? Is it regulated? Is it occasionally no. penalized? Sound regulated. No. I think <laughs> it's, it, it's basically, you know, um, where's the envelope? Here you go, doctor. Thanks so much um, for taking yeah. care of my mom or yeah. Is I heard based? similar accounts to that happening in, in other countries, I think particularly India. Um, but I, I'm curious, is, is that ever something that is that is made public and then there's shame or is it, is it not? A no, it, it, you know, it's well known. And, and I, I was reminded of this because I, um, I came across a Yale paper that talked about 
um, mental health in Ukraine that was published in 2021. And, and they, they referred to these informal payments. And then that reminded me, oh, yeah, I remember hearing about that from leg because his mom had just had surgery. And uh, um, yeah, but it's not an insubstantial sum, right? A month's oh, salary, that's, yeah. that's a chunk of change. Wow. So um, does it, it depend it on the cost? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was, it, it, it's not, it's just kind of part of the culture. It's no big deal. It's, you know, everyone knows that that's what you do. Does it depend on the cost of the surgery or the procedure, or is it just kind of a standard amount? That's what you no, do? I think it depends on the cost of the procedure okay. or the cost of whatever it is that you're, um, you know, the visit or how long the visit or how, yeah. Is there power brokering that way? Like if you want, if you're a, a, a big deal and you want, special treatment do you tip higher something like that is there uh are there, and do, how are there other weird patient doctor dynamic or i guess weird to us yeah. patient doctor dynamics that result yeah you know i don't know i don't know the answer to that it wouldn't surprise me um but but i don't know um you know i remember when i uh when i presented in kiev after the seminar someone approached me and literally begged me. Um, it was a well-to-do Ukrainian citizen who would pay me whatever I wanted to come evaluate his daughter. And I said, absolutely wow. not. That wouldn't be ethical. I, I'm just here for a day. Um, but, uh, you know, but it wouldn't surprise me, Alan, if, mm. if folks do that. Mm -hmm. Was there much outpatient um, therapy, psychotherapy? There's not, but it's increasing. Uh, you know, again, in, in the three cities where I spent, I spent the majority of time, these folks were building up outpatient practices. Um, and you know, what's really interesting is in Lviv, they had just built this site and the, the psychiatrist asked me, when you get back to the U.S., would you take pictures of your office? Would you take mm. pictures of your clinic? Would you take pictures of the toys that you have and send them to me? Because he wanted to sort of get an idea of about what is a typical child psychiatry clinic look like? Um, yeah. So, so that is, um, they're, they're, they're becoming more, um, more prevalent. It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, that your answer to Aaron's question was, was kind of, uh, and that you, you talked about CBT being kind of a nascent in introduction there, um, given the proximity of the region to kind of the birth of psychodynamic yeah. therapy and, and psychology as a whole, I'm sure there's rich tradition there, or, or I guess I'm not sure of anything. Is there, is there, have you seen that there was some tradition there that maybe was at some point suppressed or crumbled due to either autocracy or poverty? You know, I, I, I apologize, Alan. I don't know the answer to that question. I've got a lot of, uh, I, my yeah, curiosity yeah. just goes wherever. I was kind of fishing for that. I was going to see if she was going to say yeah, you know, I, for you. It, <laughs> You know, it's it's we sort of get over there, and and I wish there was more time for us to sort of sit down and. I, I've realized um, since you know the war broke out, and since we've been that there's a lot about my colleagues that I don't know because we're sort of rushing from one city to the next, from one yeah. seminar to the next, and, and aside from having a two-hour dinner at the end of the day we don't really get to spend tons. I mean, and yes, we ask them questions, um, but there's, there's not been a lot of time just to sit back and like find out more about how things have evolved. Um, yeah. It's not a social visit. You guys are on a mission. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. yeah. I wish there was more time. And I think 
in the future, I would like that. Um, and I'm going to ask for that. <laughs> what about the, you mentioned, you know, you had to make these trips uh, virtual uh, during the pandemic. What did you notice? Any differences over there with the pandemic? Yeah. So I was supposed to go in September, this past September. And I, two, two or three weeks before the scheduled trip, I elected not to go when I learned that their vaccination rate was like 20%. Um, so, so, so a lot of um, much, uh, much more laissez-faire attitude towards um, COVID and the pandemic, um, a high level of suspicion about vaccination, a lot of mis- or disinformation uh, on the internet about vaccination. So, um, Oh, I forgot what your original question was, but, but just oh, what did you, yeah, differences yeah, in. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. with, with, with the webinars, though, one of the positive things that came out is that we were having folks tune in from all over the country. So folks that wow. weren't able to attend um, our seminars because they would have had to, you know, fly right. four hours across the country, they were now able to tune in. So the, That's the, great. we were able to reach a much wider audience. That's yeah. really great. Did you yeah. notice any, um, I don't know, did they ask different questions or approach things you any know, differently? It, it varied. Um, it really varied. Um, you know, sometimes the questions would be really theoretical. And I was sort of struck by, after that long talk that I just gave, this is what you're asking me. <laughs> Help me understand. Like, it was like one little thing that I said. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, so sometimes I was caught off guard by some of the, I felt like, wow, this is the question you're asking me. Okay. Um, I have a, I have a little anecdote about that in particular with two foreign cultures kind of. Yeah. I love to yeah. Hear it. When my mom was in college, my mom was in college kind of struggling to learn English while she was pursuing her studies. And she just knew she, she was so confident. She said, you know what? It's just going to be like learning English from a fire hose. It's just going to, it's going to work out. And she went through this whole lecture and she talks about how there was this one word that the whole lecture pivoted on and once she knew what that word meant everything would make sense and so Uh she waited till the end of the lecture and she finally asked what is this one word and the word was significant (laughs) so needless to say she understood none of it well that's the end of our uh extended episode on the podcast thanks for listening